This episode of Practice Disrupted is supported by Monograph, the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. And Twinmotion, the simple, real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery, client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to Practice Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Disruptors. Hey, Evelyn. So before we jump into our usual opening banter, I wanted to take a moment to celebrate and thank our more than 10,000 unique listeners out there for tuning in and taking time out of their week to listen to Practice Disrupted. I also wanted to share with you, speaking of listeners, that someone reached out this past week on LinkedIn about the show. It was Jenny from Kalamazoo who said that she found us after listening to our crossover episode with Design Voice podcast. So it was really great to hear from her. And she was asking about the value of an MBA in an architecture firm setting. You know, initially we just connected and then started chatting and she ended up asking about the value of an MBA in an architecture studio setting. So I was explaining that to her and then we were talking about some of the upcoming diversity series work that we are going to be preparing for next season. And I mentioned that we're doing a mother's session to explore the point of view of moms in practice. And so she's really excited about that because she's a mom and was talking about her experience of trying to go through managing being a mom and her career. That's awesome. I also wanted to mention that things have really been ramping up in the practice of architecture lab. There's been some great chatter in there about employee surveys to move EDI efforts forwards, uh, some takeaways from presentation and process regarding uh, winning projects. And we're doing this weekly accountability check-in to really see where everyone's head is at and whether or not there's an opportunity to support one another, whether it be approaches to an individual's career, their firm, or even potential new business. And we actually had a new business idea come in last night. I wanted to also mention that on the last Friday this month in September, we are having a webinar talking about IT security and safety within a digital first or hybrid work environment as you think about your return to work. So go to our website, subscribe to our newsletter to register for that. And as I'm thinking about things, Janine, and as we're recording this intro, we should probably reach out to Clifton, this week's guest, and see if he's interested in doing an Ask Me Anything session for the lab. Yeah, that'd be great. I've I've really enjoyed the conversations going on in the lab. It's been a nice way to just validate some of the conversations that we're having through our recording session and just checking in with people to see what they're thinking about and meeting so many people too. So jumping into today's conversation, Evelyn, why did you want to bring Clifton on? So I was actually first introduced to Tesfit.io, and more specifically Clifton, during a presentation that he and a few others, including Kat Dov, who we've also had on Practice Disrupted, during a conversation hosted by AIA National Strategic Council, looking at the cross-section of architecture, building, and technology, and what's the future look like. While I appreciate what Tesfit is doing to save time through iterations, and we can talk a little bit about that You know, Jen Carl, who is also a previous guest, mentioned that architects can really take advantage of getting rid of the mundane tasks, right? And I feel like that's what TestFit is doing. But it's actually more interested in the fact that Clifton, unlike any of our other guests, virtually dived into this entrepreneurial endeavor almost immediately after graduating from college. And he is a true hustler, I would say, in the sense of like what it means to be to hustle and be an entrepreneur. So ultimately, what I was really interested in about Clifton is that he saw where the architecture industry was struggling during his summer internships. Meanwhile, it took me five to seven years to kind of digest what was happening and where the opportunities were. You know, so I just wanted to find out from his perspective 
how did he come to these insights so fast? And what, if anything, historically kind of motivated this path that he took with TestFit.io? Janine, why don't you jump into his bio? Clifton Harness loves to build buildings and now new companies. He graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with his B-Arc, and soon after joining a real estate development company, he started working with his college roommate, Ryan, and together, after hours, they started innovating on a prospective new company and deal process. This work grew into TestFit, and Clifton now lives in Dallas with his wife, Annalisa, baby Savannah, and their golden doodle Brinkley, as well as four chickens. This work grew into TestFit, and Clifton now lives in Dallas, where he's running his company full-time along with his growing team and his wife, Annalisa, and baby Savannah. Great. Let's cut to the interview. Tell our guests a little bit about yourself and a little bit about TestFit. Sure. Uh, so I've got a background in architecture, BARC. I... I'm, uh, I guess I'll, I'll say the, the, I'm not a geriatric uh, millennial. I'm like the opposite. Although Janine calls herself a geriatric millennial. Did, did you get that? I think I'm qualified. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to apply for AARP later. <laughs> I identify much more with, uh, with the Gen Z, uh, you know, internet natives. Um, you know, I, I feel like being this old and I'm 30, so I guess I'm old now, uh, there's maybe uh, a different perspective that, that I bring to the industry. And that's that I was an internet native, uh, that I uh, grew up in a world where you could demand instant gratification and get it. And that, you know, like, like early on in my career, I had an architect sit down and talk to me and she said, you know, Clifton, you can either like every project is either got, you know, a cost a quality and a time parameter associated with it. And like, you can only win two out of the three when you're like designing buildings. And, you know, I, I was kind of like listening to that. I'm like, yeah, I guess our process is terrible. Like we don't really have a process for scaling our, <laughs> you know, construction document business. I think I, I felt like a bit of a stranger walking into capital A architecture as an intern and asked to tag doors with, an oval with a piece of text inside it inside AutoCAD and then was told that like the use of blocks was was against the rules and like I, I was kind of livid in some of my later internships because there was just a lack of, of process like it wasn't even a lack of process innovation it was a lack of even caring about process um, and I, I worked at some of the most amazing design firms in in Texas highest quality buildings, the product, absolutely amazing. The people, absolutely amazing. And at the end of the project, you kind of look around and turn around and you look at this disaster of process that like there was bodies strewn, but you know, there's, there's problems <laughs> everywhere. And like, sure, you have your CFO, maybe you're, you're completely done, but you didn't learn from the process. That was, I don't know, maybe an observation that I had while in architecture school. And at the same time, I, was really like I really wanted to be like a star architect. You know, like they 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 really do a bad job in architecture school. Of, like, <laughs> like your your aspirations are are really really high because you're you're doing like things like design a museum and you're doing things like design a, a capital building or a, or a library or or any of these these sort of functions uh, that really cause you to think uh, how to solve a problem. But in reality, it's like very little practical skills to carry into into the into the profession and so the thing the thing that really started to interest me was commodity buildings was like like what if i were to be the bjark ingles of like apartment buildings like just straight up like <laughs> we got to provide housing like it's not sexy it's a utility in a way necessary yeah it's it's a necessity um and so i started to get really interested in that uh, and uh, decided to uh, go work for a real estate developer that did that did apartment buildings, and that was that was eye opening as a 18 year old uh, or 19 year old, I think, uh, to go get your first development internship and kind of talk about finance as a as an architecture student. And I think my professors, like they they knew that I was in development internships, and they really were uncomfortable with it. Like they were really uncomfortable with it. And they asked me why, and I was like, well. 
I want to be able to communicate to my clients uh, when I'm an architect and I want to be able to understand their market really well. And I want to understand how they think so that I can build the best product that I possibly can for them. And like early college kid, me thinking that. So if you, if you, if you want to be a startup person, like if you have really deep thoughts like this, but you're going to have to do it. Like it's a thing that you have to do. You just got to get it out sometime in your life. To be clear, when it comes to process, you are definitely among friends here. Sure. So. Yeah, I, I think the learned technologists really like they. I think we all view the market much the same way that we could really use a lot of process innovation more than you know creating new materials or creating new systems that are even more complicated to understand. And I don't know, repeatable parts is like a, a thought that would come to mind. Like, what? Why is there not a Ford of housing? Like the best. The best housing developer in the U.S. right now doesn't even have four uh, percent of the market. Like it's, it is the most fragmented market. It's hard to see where, like where innovation or where the Katero emerges that's going to disrupt everything. Or you know, obviously not Katero anymore. But like, what is the thing? What's the killer app for housing, and what's going to happen? And I don't think anybody knows. Uh, I have ideas, but. Before we jump into TestFit, and just because I want to find out a little bit more about you, I don't, I appreciate your way of thinking, which is obviously why we wanted to bring you on Practice Disrupted, but I don't think that your average architecture student is coming out of their internship saying like, this process really sucks. <laughs> so what about your background or upbringing kind of made you latch onto that? Or That's a great question. I used to be able to point to like Myers-Briggs and be like, you know, this is the sort of like bucket that I'm in, you know, the, the way that I think is, you know, systems think in terms of how do you build big systems that can understand complicated problems simply. I mean, honestly, every architect out there is a systems builder. Like whether they know it or not, like the unit is part of the building, which is part of, you know, the block, which is part of the city, which is part of, you know, like everything that you do as an architect is contributing to a system of some sort. Uh, but I got really excited about systems thinking as a kid, like with blocks and Legos and like, how do you, how do you create a system where you can connect blocks with like, like things that I was worried about as an eight-year-old were like those things. Right. Uh, but instead now I worry about, I guess, like parking garages and, and roads or, or something. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your company? So uh, co-founded it with uh, Ryan Greaves, my CTO. He would wake me up and make sure that I'd get to the studio uh, on time. Like, cause you don't sleep at all in architecture school. We, we just had like a really deep relationship, you know, friendship really. And that, that grew into more of a professional or not really professional in college. Like we built a game together. We built a couple of, you know, stupid little apps that, that would help little problems for our house. And we had 10 people living in a house. It was just amazing. <laughs> One dishwasher, 10 people, <laughs> terrible idea. Um, and really through this relationship, I, I learned just how powerful programming could be. So like at UT, you get exposed to, I got your architecture school, I got exposed to Dynamo and Grasshopper and, you know, some of these things that, that give the impression of programming, but like in a way are, are limited uh, by the sandbox that they're in. Uh, when I was in uh, development out of school, 2015, 2016, I, I called Ryan and said, hey man, like I'm really having a difficult time uh, solving unit mixes. Uh, and so like, unit mixes are a, are both a spatial problem and a math problem. Cause like you're trying to cram proportions of units in a building, uh, in a, in a really good way. Like you don't want to just chuck them in the building. Like you want similar units to stack. You want your plumbing walls to be efficient. And so I walked him through the, through the problem and he said, Hey, like I could probably build an app that would solve that. And I was like, prove it. <laughs> um, and he built a he built a simple terminal app. You'd like type in your your width of your units and your width of your corridor, and it spit out. Here's how you solve this corridor. Here's how you solve this corridor with the units. And it's like perfect unit mix, like in the first, you know, the first go. And that like I looked around, I was like, well, the unit mixes used to take me like four hours to solve. So, all right, what's the next thing in terms of of test fit? Testfit likes to think in terms of scale. It likes to think in not, I'm not saying like one to 500 or, or one to a thousand, but in terms of how do you scale up 
like one architect's ability to be significantly more powerful at their jobs just by providing software, like good software, not bad software. Most of the stuff out there is bad software. It's not very focused. It's 20 years old. Uh, needs, you know, it wasn't built by by uh, millennials. It was built by a generation that shall not be named. <laughs> okay. This conversation is really making me think about efficiency because I think that that's the root of what we're talking about. And we've talked about this on the show before with past guests about this desire to eliminate time that's being used in ways that's non efficient so that you can put your time towards other things that are more valuable. And I guess every time I see one of the test fit videos, that's like what I think about is just like how much time is being saved by being able to iterate so fast. Yeah. So luckily for us, we're in a part of the market where architects are not getting paid for feasibility studies. And so we basically can reduce their opportunity costs 90 to 95% once they're trained up. One, one architect out in, was out in San Francisco. I don't think I could say his name, um, but he said, you know, Clifton, this like turning an intern into a guy with 10 years of experience <laughs> overnight. And I was like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's what happens when you embed intelligence like into a tool, right? Like what if we had been embedding design intelligence into tools from 1960s, 1970s, 1980s on, we would be, a very different world, but you have to deal with the human component. Like everybody's, everybody's really obsessed with efficiency because they think that they want efficiency. They think that they want things to be done quickly. In reality, I think what people want is, is, a, is to feel trust uh, whenever they look at the thing that just got generated and they want to be able to trust that thing. And so invariably, like every time you start a new project, or if it goes from like, you know, SDs to DDs, there's always this pause of a nesting phase where thing you just need to digest what you're about to do and then go out and do it. So I, I always like to say like, yeah, it's efficient, but you need to think about what you're doing. Like you, sure you can click a button, but think about what you're doing. Like what is the quality of the, of the parameters that you're plugging in? And in that way, like in the future, I think the ability for designers to be as successful as they possibly can is to understand how an algorithm works and know how to exploit it in ways that you can get the result that you need to get as fast as possible or with as high of quality as uh, high of a quality as possible. Maybe we should talk about the fact that you started this company while you were still in school. So you went to UT Austin, right? Yeah, I went to went to UT Austin. Uh, my thesis project was basically like a deal information modeling tool that linked SketchUp and Excel. And I made the cardinal sin of having the financial model drive the form of the building, never making that mistake again. We didn't start TestFit while I was in college. I'm mean, saying uh, we started, you know, when I was working, you know, I, had, I went and talked to my boss. I was like, hey, can I work on this nights and the weekend? He's like, yeah, I guess. It's not going to turn into anything. And like, <laughs> of course, like five years later, you're like, yeah, it turned into something. What was the um, problem that you identified when you started developing this idea? And tell us a little bit more about the solution process and basically taking what you learned and running with it. Where we started was with Texas Donuts. That is about 8% of housing in the U.S. Uh, it's a, a structured parking garage, typically above grade, with units wrapped just all the way around it on all sides. And when I was working professionally, I would draw site plans or have my architect draw site plans. And I, either I was counting every single parking stall uh, to check the math for me, uh, or I was checking somebody else's math. And one day I walked into my, into my boss's office and he was checking the math that I had just checked. So I was like, all right, this is a huge waste of everybody's time confirming like how, big, how much stuff is in a site plan. That was maybe... A, a nudge for me to to think okay what if we don't have to worry about counting parking stalls again uh so like first the first problem was the unix right the second problem is parking and so you just sort of identify you know a problem and then you solve it and go to the next one and the next one and the next one and until evelyn and Jeanette invite me to the podcast to talk about the problem for solving. <laughs> yep so problem we're doing lots of site plans we got to do eight schemes to get to one that we like to see if a deal will work 
We're running financial models, part construction models, you know, trying to solve a deal uh, in real estate development. Uh, and the site plans are really important. We knew we had to make a lot of them. And so I was, I was talking to Ryan, uh, my co-founder about this in maybe 2015 or 2016 and kind of walking him through like how I draw a rat. You know, okay, so set the property line, set the setbacks. I go in, you know, a foot off of the setbacks because I want to make sure I have enough space in the future or the poor sap in the future needs to fit, you know. I'm giving you 12 inches of tolerance. And then I go, you know, okay, 65 foot building mass width, put a corridor down the middle of it, uh, just offset, offset, trim, trim, trim. And I kind of walk through the whole process. And, you know, it's 15,000 commands to draw one, you know, multifamily building. Mm -hmm. And I sort of walked Ryan through it and he said, okay, uh, let's do it again. And we just changed the site. We drew it manually together and like literally walked through, like what are the steps that a designer would go through in order to draw a rat building? And the shape of the land always changed, you know, so we were trying to build, or we still do try to build really powerful algorithms that uh, can operate on any any kind of geometry. It doesn't need to be a rectangle. It can be triangle or polygon or irregular polygon. From the very get-go, we're trying to make it really flexible and scalable because uh, we knew that there would be other building types uh, down the road. Now, if you're a startup person and you're considering starting a business, I would not start on a building typology that has 8% penetration <laughs> in multifamily, which is 12% of the market. Well, pre-COVID is 12% of the market. Now it's like 40% of the market. So yeah, multifamily is absurd. So obviously you were doing this, you were moonlighting a little bit in the creation of it. So when did you decide this is this is going to be an actual yep. thing? I'm going to commit 100% to it and turn it into a business. And what are your kind of biggest lessons learned in that transition? That's a great question. Like we, we never set out, you know, I don't know, like Mark Zuckerberg or something to go build some giant thing, right? Like Ryan and I are, are, are pretty down to earth, like pretty observant about what's going on around us. And, you know, like the goals for us in the early days were like to just build a product and see if somebody would sell it. Like the, for us, the, there's somebody would buy it. I had to sell it. Oh my word, I had to sell it. Still have to sell it. The impetus really for me to leave my job was that I, I just was so passionate and excited about building this business. And, you know, the real thing that put me over the hump was when my wife said, I am committed to doing this with you. Um, so, you know, if, if you're going to do something meaningful, do it with those that you value the most and with their with their permission. So I want to circle back at a story that we were going to get you to start talking about at the top of the hour. But tomorrow you're actually headed to Portugal, right, for, for a wedding. Yep, for an employee who you DM'd out of the blue. So tell us that story. All right. So uh, twenty. So twenty seventeen was pretty rough. We, we we launched in October of twenty seventeen. I would drive to Houston and like prospect for a whole week, and then I drive to Austin and do the same thing. Drive to San Antonio, do the same thing. Basically within driving distance of Dallas because we couldn't afford to fly anywhere. We made a little bit of money, and then we could afford to fly somewhere. So I flew to Atlanta. We made a little bit more money from Atlanta. Then I flew to Boston, made a little bit more from Boston. And Ryan's sort of like, uh, hey, like you're having a lot of, you know, fun, like meeting with people. And I'm like sitting here inside a cave programming the entire day. You know, like, can we get some more people? <laughs> so it's like a business. We had always considered the fact that we needed someone. I mean, when you're two people, you really need at least one more person. <laughs> and when you're three people, you need more people. Uh, it's just like, it's a snowballing effect. Um, and I was like, well, what kind of person would you want to hire? And Ryan said, uh, I don't know. I've never hired someone before. And then I was like, yep, me neither. You know, this is sort of how we communicate seasonally. And like three weeks later, he's like, dude, I saw some programming on Reddit, like our programming to the subreddit for programmers. It was like a snippet that I really liked. And it's in, you know, like it, it could be something that we use or like it could be, you know, an engineer that, that we could hire. But Ryan was like, yeah, I doubt this person that wrote this code would want to work for a startup. And, you know, what are we to this person? 
because you don't know right like it, it was like really weird dming this guy to be like hey we're interested in like the code that you wrote we think you'd be a good you know addition to our team well we didn't say that because we wanted to you know interview him um turns out he was in his last semester last month of his master's degree was looking for a job was a perfect fit for our code base uh and the only catch was he lived in portugal but he spoke english and had internet so we're like wait we could be and this was this is pre-covid so like you know my family was like you're not going to have people in an office like a normal <laughs> business i'm like no, like I'm not even in the office mm-hmm. at all now. Like I travel all the time. That was uh, how we met Joao. Uh, he was our first employee and uh, he's getting married uh, this weekend. And Ryan and I are flying out uh, to Portugal tomorrow morning. And I guess when you're listening to this podcast, it was, I don't know, we're flying out late August. So yeah, Evelyn is really advocating for me to adopt Twitter and I've been resistant. I used it a long time ago, but I've been pulling my social media back over the past couple of years slowly. <laughs> yeah, it's it can be a real real time waste social media can, but uh, when when you come into like a startup world or you're building a business like you are, especially if you're young, you don't have a network, you don't know anybody. Uh, and you know, the first 100 test fit customers I had to go like knock down their door and beg them to 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 look at what we had and then to beg them to adopt it mm-hmm. and then to beg them to pay me you know social media gives young people i think a huge huge amount of leverage uh, with their network let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode monograph we're proud to partner with monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture one design studio at a time Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. And Twinmotion. Now, you've probably heard of Zaha Hadid Architects. As one of the world's best-known firms when it comes to innovation, they're big fans of pushing boundaries. The team at ZHA has started using Twinmotion, a simple real-time ArcViz tool that lets you instantly visualize ideas and clearly communicate them to stakeholders. ZHA designer Marco Margetta says that the benefit of using Twinmotion for the designers are the simplicity of the interface, the playfulness with which you can articulate your scenes, and not having to worry about all the technical aspects that real-time usually brings, like light maps, PBR workflows, and other technical details. Marco also loves Twinmotion Cloud, which lets any member of the team access a project from their web browser without a single download or installation. The project manager can access the model, review it, and immediately give you feedback anytime from anywhere, says Marco. To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link disrupted. That's twinmotion.link disrupted. I want to come back to this idea about you knocking down the doors of all of your 100 first customers. Can you talk about some of the lessons that you've learned from going out and putting yourself out there and selling to developers and architects and brokers? They all want different things. They all uh, think that their role in the process is, you know, very important. So you have to go in with every meeting, you know, go into meetings with respect, honestly. Uh, sometimes I see competitors of mine that really only sell to real estate developers completely not respect the profession of architecture at all. Um, and I think they're doing a great disservice to generative design and, and to the future of, of the ecosystem we're trying to build. In early October 2017, it's kind of when we released, I sat in a Starbucks and I just guessed 3000 email addresses of people that you know you look up architects in milwaukee you know and 
there's uh, Epstein UN or, you know, there's, there's some architect up there. Um, you get on their website and you, you go through and you look at all the principles and you're like, dear Lord, I'm a 25 year old kid. Here's a, you know, 60 year old guy that I, I plan to automate some of what his function is. So I took the first year or so I was really, really careful with how I phrased what I wanted from people. And in reality, I really needed their wisdom. Like the, the people that have a lot of knowledge, institutional knowledge uh, in AEC are typically older and they got a lot of wisdom and they get a lot of connections. Treating those prospects with a lot of respect uh, was helpful, I think. Uh, Cause like my cold email was like, hi, you know, Bob, I'm an entrepreneur from Texas. We're building an algorithm that draws parking stalls really fast. Would you want to take a look at it? Um, I, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your story and, and attaining wisdom. You know, so really it is, you could have a killer app, but if you don't have the, the personality to, to connect with people, you're not gonna be successful at all. Um, and that's, that's the sales game. I mean, sales is a, is a, is a part of uh, the architecture industry that I think maybe 10% of architects really figure it out. You know, these are the guys that bring in giant deals for firms. Uh, and there's some really good ones uh, that, that are in my Rolodex now. Um, and so asking for advice is never going to be like the worst that can happen is someone can say no. Asking to make a sale right now uh, for a product they haven't seen in an industry that they deeply love, not a great recipe for success. So I, yeah, our architects and developers are, are the typical customers. And you said brokers, uh, it's a new kind of market for us, but general contractors are seeing a bit more uh, traction with. And they're starting to do more pre-con services, specifically when, when architects are so overloaded like they are right now uh, that they, they can't even get site plans out the door. Or they can just <laughs> not post for um, I A little bit of a different spin on that question is... Um, I actually, I, I think our audience will be pleasantly surprised about your acknowledgement towards the older generation of architects and those leadership and how you how you sought after them for for wisdom. Our usual angle on practice disrupted is is to talk about like like what aren't architects na naturally getting? So is there is there something in the conversation where like developers pick it up like super quick and you just like wish that architects understood this side of the business a little better so you didn't have to consistently explain the same thing over and over? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to like do you understand your customer? And when I was in development, I don't think any of our architects really understood what we needed. They would over-design, like 10x over-design. We're in deal deal territory. We don't even have SDs. We don't have the land under under lock. And I'm getting an SD set. Um, so they're wasting tremendous amounts of resources and time and effort creating documentation that, that might not be needed. It will be needed later, but what, like why work? Why do future work? You know, today. Um, you could do it later when you should, should be doing it later. Real estate development is a math problem. And if your building doesn't fit into that math problem, like no matter how beautiful it is or, or how well crafted it is, it's never gonna work out. I mean, it, it just won't, uh, you've got five analyses that need to happen every time you look at a new, new piece of land. Um, and the financial analysis is huge. It's what your developers typically doing. Construction analysis, you know, what does it cost? We're going to make it out of uh, the site plan analysis, which is the, what TestFit's typically known for. Uh, the zoning uh, and conformance analysis, which I don't know how we're going to do that one. It's like three thousand different counties in this country with like nine thousand municipalities, and you know, like no government has budget to do diddly. It's amazing. And then the last analysis is actually the land itself. Like who owns the land? What are the meets and bounds? What's the topography? How does the building sit on this piece of land? And so you have to do all five of these things to understand whether or not a project will, will pencil even, uh, which is to say we are spending a tremendous amount of time on, on feasibility, um, you know, maybe when we don't need to be. Like why, why can't TestFit take the first whack at any site plan? 
Um, they'll get within 90% of what an architect's going to do in a few seconds. But then the next iteration, because the first one's already done, that's when you craft. Like that's when you get in as the architect, like, all right, we're going to make, we're going to make a place now. Um, so solve the deal, uh, solve the deal metrics, make the financing, hard costs, everything work, and then craft the building and make it into architecture. That's actually a really good point. I, I've frequently been in architects' offices where these feasibility studies are coming in, and they're quick turnaround. They're like, you know, it's it's something that the developer is looking for quickly, and that the architect needs to fit into their already busy project schedule. And it just makes sense to me that you're looking for an arrangement on the site more so than you're looking for a building footprint that's perfectly designed. It's more about understanding the mechanics of what the constraints of the site can allow. And so I like your point about really just understanding the value of what the developer's asking for in terms of the exercise versus what the architect might be inherently hoping to get out of the exercise for their own emotional benefit. <laughs> I know they only asked for this, but we're going to give a little bit more. So when they move on to the next step, yeah, we'll like, be every like ready. Across the whole country is having like the same exact thought. Like, oh, like we've done business with this company for 20 years. We have to do like a lot more work on this site plan. And in reality, like they're, they're still going to come back. Like if you do good work for SDs and, or for CDs and DDs and, and uh, CA, we'll come back to you. Like for sure on the execution. Architects, you're getting paid for the execution, for sure. Even in your hustle alone, I think in cold, e like cold emailing, reaching, like driving out, those are not usual characteristics of firm leaders and architecture practice. I would say. So where where does this entrepreneurial side <laughs> of you like come in? Where 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 is that learned from? That's a great question. So my grandfather Clifton Bolner, my mother's father. Uh, was a uh, entrepreneur, still is, still puttering around in San Antonio. But he built a spice company uh, in San Antonio. It's called Fiesta. Uh, and our blends and stuff are, are everywhere across the, the country, the U.S. And I grew up in that culture. I grew up in, you know, like you want to go uh, have, a, have a summer? No. You're going to go stand on the jar line and you know, learn how a plant works. You want to, you know, watch TV? No, you're going to go learn how to do a QA, QC test on, you know, how do, how do you irradiate stuff? Like it's, you know, it's like things that I learned as a kid were not things that other kids learned as a kid. And then my dad, uh, on my dad's side, uh, it's a real estate development family, like through and through. Uh, developers are a different breed altogether. I mean, they just, they don't, they don't come to conferences. They don't want to be known. They don't like, I kind of laugh at some development websites that are really well done, you know, because it's like, oh, the only thing that people can do is just criticize all of your, you know, projects on your website. Family really is a good driver, I think. I think architecture was me. I wanted to do architecture. Uh, and I got into the second best architecture school at the time, uh, UT, Cookham, as I've said like nine times on the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. As a, Young entrepreneur, where do you go to for your own professional development? Like who is it from mentors? Are you reading books? Like how do you, how are you growing into this role? Uh, yeah, I have about six personal mentors uh, that I, I can communicate with at least once a month. I like, I can't stress enough how important it is to have people in your life around you that can like, you know, as iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another, like it, it really is important. Um, and these are people that are outside the company. So I'm not talking to an employee. I'm not talking to an investor. I'm not talking to someone like that, but I'm getting professional advice. And then in some cases, I, some of these people are, are so close that I get personal advice from too, as in addition to, to professional advice. So I've been very fortunate, like from the time I was my first internship, I think I was 16 or something in architecture. You know, I went and talked, I asked the firm principal, like I, the second, first day I was there, I walked up to his desk and I said, uh, sir, can I uh, take you to lunch uh, as soon as I earned my first paycheck? The guy looked at me, he was like, what, <laughs> what is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually I have a similar story. I went over to the desk of one of the guys who is like very technically minded, 
not a human interaction kind of person and like sat down at his desk and was like, hi, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Janine. <laughs> and he just looked at me like I had two heads and it was like the most just uncomfortable moment ever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I work at your firm. Like you should like care. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think not our, that world, my but. parents' generation, <laughs> especially when it comes to office work, you, like the very different mentality in terms of like what a worker is and what a worker does. And, and like you're in a box and you stay in your box and you get out of your box. Like, we're gonna have some issues, you know. Like test fit company culture is the exact opposite. There's <laughs> like very loose structure. We're all headed towards a very specific goal, but you know, everybody's free to go on a journey to get to that goal. It's when I think in architecture specifically, you're so uh tied to your timesheet and like billing hours and and um staying efficient that like you kind of don't get the the sort of gestation and nesting and and the kind of stuff that we get uh in the software world where like you have deadlines but they're not like if we don't hit this deadline we lose our you know temporary certificate of occupancy and you know and then there's liquidated damages and you know then we're gonna get sued you know that didn't happen for us hopefully it never will um but we get to be a bit more creative. Like the mythical man month is totally true. Like the algorithms that we build are highly creative. Uh, I can't just throw like some guy I've never met some, like I can hire a programmer to make a website tomorrow. I couldn't hire a programmer just to build, you know, build a parking generator. Like it looked terrible. You have to sit down, talk through it. It's very creative. And in a way, like when I, when I, when I go around to my engineers or when, um, our customer success people go to the engineers with uh, customer feedback. It's a bit like a, like an architecture studio. It feels like, like, cause Hey, like there's this feature that the, the low density configurator doesn't have that the high density one does have. And, you know, so you're like talking to the engineer, you're kind of like leaning over on their desk. Well, we're on Slack, Evelyn. So we're, we're not really, you know, leaning on people's desks, but, um, you know, we get into a Google meet and we talk at length about like light industrial. We, we just uh, announced a light industrial beta. It's literally a giant box of a building. We build almost as much light industrial in this country as we do uh, multifamily buildings. Um, it's not sexy, but geez, imagine drawing thousands of parking stalls for a light industrial building. I, I consider myself a bit of a pessimist. I'm trying to be a more of an optimist when it comes to the future of the profession. I'm interested to hear your take on on whether you deem yourself a pessimist or an optimist and and where it's an interesting question. I think before so I'm in a very unique position. Um, I'm one of the few people that has leverage uh, over technology in in this industry and like it <laughs> I didn't realize it until recently, right? Like I didn't realize that TestFit was as big as it was. Uh, and it, like, it, I, I just remember like we closed this huge deal and made a lot of money. Great. You know, but it's, it's the adoption, right? Like it's the adoption that, that really gets me excited and looked at the adoption for one of our new, you know, new customers. And I'm like, okay, they paid us this and then we're seeing this amount of effort, this amount of activity. And I don't know, like you, when you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're running through a dark tunnel with a train behind you and you're just desperate to see that light at the end of the tunnel. So I see the light. We're going to make it right. Um, but there could be so much more innovation that goes into this industry and into this company uh, than there is now. Like TestFit is only, you know, for the first several years, it was only what I could conceive of in my mind, right? But now we have 12 employees, we have hundreds of firms. The future of the tool is, is driven not by me anymore. And that that makes me, I think, an optimist of one uh, that it, it, it wasn't me that got it here, right? It was like everybody else that just agreed that, yeah, this is all right. This is a good way to go. 
Uh, all right. Sorry for the emotion. <laughs> no, I appreciate that candor. No, it's welcome. I mean, I think it's amazing. I was going to say, I guess, as somebody who's not inside your organization looking from the outside in, the reason that we get excited to bring someone like you on the show is because you become a case study for what's possible for the rest of us. And just the tenacity to go out and launch this business, first of all, that's huge. But the fact that you came up with something that does challenge the market and does challenge the status quo on how people think about design and demonstrates a new way of thinking, it's hope. It gives me a lot of hope as someone who's also trying to do that from my own business perspective. Um, and I know that there, in, in all of these conversations that we've had on the podcast, there's so many people out there wanting that, that we need people like you who are saying, this is possible. Yes, it might be only one small part of the industry that I made change, but that gives hope to so many people. It makes such a huge impact. Yeah. If, if I can get 10% of people to stop drawing parking stalls manually, I think I'll have done, done my job, you know? Um, Next, you can move on to toilet details and stair stairwells. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! Bathroom details. Did y'all see that? Uh, I, like a, a Reddit pure post about how many parameters are associated with uh, handrails or something. It's like oh, sixty-three yeah. parameters. Oh, I know. Like, wow, there's <laughs> no way that like a deck of cards. I think if you reshuffle a deck of cards. 52 of them. There is more, wait, there's more, fewer atoms in the universe than there are combinations of 52 cards in a row, right? Like the, the, the thing that shocks me is like, you're just, when you're at 63 parameters, you're just inviting complexity to just crush your entire model. Well, that, that post got me thinking because I saw people reacting differently to it. And it just kind of aligned with this idea that there's like different ways that people are thinking about this problem. Like for some people, they're in the camp where they're like, yeah, that's 62 reasons that I get to like tweak the model and I'm going to obsess about it. And then there's like, I saw one person who I won't say, but they were like, this is the reason that I'm getting out of this field you're like over designing something and so like there's this like spectrum of people that are like all in on this kind of level of detail and some people that like just can't handle it or they're not interested in it well the the reality is that some things shouldn't be parametric i say like i say stuff like this on twitter like i say like like i I had one that didn't like people didn't like at all so when when i whenever i offend aaron Mahler, i know i'm going against the grain but it was like the only way we're getting to model-based delivery is if we can generate, you know, every single drawing at will instantaneously, right? Like, but my point, like my point is that you want model-based delivery, your model's got to be so good that you could generate a drawing from it at any moment in time. That I think is like possible, but the thing is like when you, okay, when you go to architecture school, they tell you, Windows are, are not windows anymore. They're apertures and doors are not doors. They're portals. Like I thought the first time they said, I was like, Oh, this is dumb. Like what? Like I missed the point of the exercise, right? The, the point of the exercise is you've been using the built environment the same way your entire life. You have these specific defaults that you default to as a user of the built environment. As a, as a human, you have these defaults around you that you just think things are the way they are. Cause that's the way that they are. And you take it for granted because it's frankly easier to, to not have to process everything around you at all times. Um, so that is to say, like, this industry right now is stuck in, like, a CAD bucket or a BIM bucket or, like, you know, the people that are really passionate about BIM are going to be really up in arms if you uh, say you want to disrupt something with BIM. And the people that are <laughs> the people passionate about CAD um, the people that haven't adopted BIM yet uh, are sort of like, well, we don't think Revit's ever going to be a thing for us. So we're just waiting for the next thing that comes out. And like the majority of housing units in the US are not designed in Revit. They're designed in like CAD. Some, some of them are in the US are designed in uh, one of the biggest architects doesn't use AutoCAD. They use uh, I think MicroStation or something. So like there's there are 
lots of ways of solving problems when you don't think like when you think it sounds stupid think outside the box honestly like but the thing is like you have to like actually physically get out of the box in order to think outside the box so like if you're going to work in an architecture firm you're not going to think the way a technologist will think unless you're no longer at that architecture firm you'll think like an architect doing technology but i don't think like i think you need a separation in order for your priorities or for the priorities of the business to shift like i love it when i see gensler made blocks which was this i think it's a grasshopper plugin or something i don't know it's a big planning tool and i'm like this is great look at this they have the ability to build this this is amazing they're never going to sell it to anybody else it's going to be locked up in gensler forever uh and you know what are you going to do it's, it's like it's, it's really hard uh, for architecture firms to create ip uh and invest in it because it locks their people into certain companies if they learn how to use that technology and it's only there yeah i'd be worried i really enjoyed the conversation the your answer to the optimist versus pessimist was interesting because i think like if i were just to take that last piece out of out of it, I would have been like, oh, Clifton's more of a pessimist. So to hear that like optimistic side. I, I think every every disruptor is a pessimist. I think you have to be. Like you have to be a pessimist about the things that can really go bad. But you have to be an optimist about the things that can go right. And a lot of people are not comfortable living in the volatility, um, which is why you need a co-founder. Honestly, co-founders help you get through the volatility of not knowing what the future looks like at all. And you're in it together. I mean, frankly, it's like a marriage. Like, I feel like I'm married to my co-founder the same way, married to my wife, because like we are committed. Uh, we, well, there's lots of very clear differences, <laughs> but my point is that like, I'm not leaving it. Like there's not gonna be a test fit without Ryan Greed to me, right? Like that, that doesn't seem like a future that I want to be a part of because like you do the things that you want to do with the people you want to do it with. And it's a journey, it's an adventure. And that's, you know, that's, I mean, every architecture firm that starts up with, with, uh, with two partners or something like you have to have that. I mean, I've seen lots of solo architects try. They're less successful. I think that's a great jumping off point to our last question. What other, whether other tips, tricks, suggestions, advice do you have for young architects, you know, fourth, fifth years, or just wrapping up their MARC? as they're embarking into the profession and thinking about going out on their own or being more entrepreneurial? Yeah, I would, I would say get absolutely lethal at doing two or three critical things. Like architecture is a very uh, cyclical industry. So if you can make yourself an incredibly valuable employee uh, by, I don't know, you're the guy that, that knows how to run Dynamo, that you're the guy that knows how to code. I think what I'm saying is the future skills that will keep you employed are, are learning more about software than they are, you know, line weights or the, the rhythm of the facade. I mean, like the, 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 like you can worry about that once you have the software, you know, piece understood. And the gateway drug to that's Grasshopper, Dynamo, Python. I mean, there's a lot that you can do there. Uh, but my advice would be, be absolutely lethal at something. So that way, when they're going through all the lists of people you gotta lay off, you're not even on the list. So there's this continuous thread that I see emerging throughout Practice Disrupted on a lot of different episodes. But I want to believe it's because it's actually a really important piece that somehow we never spend enough time on. And that's this idea of process. And when I think about why, and I'm using kind of a royal we here, like all of our, like all architects tend to do this, but I, I realize there are some architects that are much more forward thinking in this area. I have to believe it comes back to like design with a big D and the necessity for us to always create everything from scratch and not necessarily share, even internally. So I worked at a firm where depending on who your project manager was, each project manager was literally like keeping their own library and we couldn't share library details with one, within one another within a firm. And I think that might be an extreme example, but you know, at the same time, I don't know, I worked at another firm who had the worst time 
updating their library. So I had like, you know, 25 different variations on a tile detail that we were using for a variety of different schools across the same school district. So let's talk about the need for process (laughs) and building in business efficiencies. That's a good question, Evelyn. And I'm trying to decide sometimes I think, and it varies based on the firm, like, is it a need to start from scratch and design everything uniquely? Or sometimes I wonder if it's just that there's so much emphasis on the project that they neglect to think about the processes behind the business. But one company that I think is thinking about process is Kieran Timberlake. And we heard that in the interview that we did with them back in season one is that they have literally a process for everything. Everything is mapped. So it doesn't matter where you are in the firm that there, if there's a a task that the firm identifies as a process, there's a process procedure outlined for each part of the firm, which is kind of impressive because most firms don't have that. Yeah. And I, you know, it makes onboarding, right? people so much easier and getting people up to speed when you're not having to search in a zillion different places to find how to do something because that is all in one place too. So it's, you know, it's interesting how these small, seemingly small things really scale really easily. Uh, And actually it doesn't take long to kind of see where you can gain back some of that precious time, some of those precious billable hours. I often see people who are working on different project teams, like say they have, like you said, working for different project managers, sometimes they did this versus sometimes they did that and they would hoard different uh, detail libraries. Uh, But I think also like when you jump from manager to manager and you're dealing with different personalities, what I've frequently heard is people struggle with different managers who have different ways they like to manage projects. And it can vary widely based on personality and leadership style and preference. But when you have a process or at least a loose framework for a process, it makes that transition when you go from your commercial team's project over to your, I don't know, healthcare studios project. If there's some basis for process, then it makes that transition just a little bit easier on the person that has to kind of be bench player on those teams. Absolutely. So, I I mean, for me, a big takeaway, and I I hope a big takeaway, at least for our listeners, is kind of identifying those areas where you can begin to build in these processes. And it could be as as simple, right, as as creating that library or finding a way to continuously update that library, which I know some firms struggle with. But I I think it's just one of those things that it makes it so much easier for everyone in in the long run. And I got to think that there's some technology somewhere where if you have a library and you find out there's been a code change and you need to update a detail in the library, there's got to be some technology that allows you to update the library and have it carry through on all active projects. And maybe if that library, and maybe if that technology doesn't exist, maybe somebody can go out and build it now. Yeah, actually, I do have a friend who's working on a startup for AEC that looks into Revit libraries and how to transfer them. Um, We can, you know, he's at the beginning process of his company, so maybe we'll bring him on a later point to talk about it. But he's definitely exploring the technology requirements and how to do that across projects and across Revit models. That's awesome. We'll definitely consider him for a future episode. The other thing that I wanted to touch a little bit on is just sales, because I feel like Clifton did the equivalent of door-to-door, going door-to-door, like being the door-to-door vacuum salesman, Um, but like literally just like cold calling firms and flying to their destination and and, like showing up and trying to get a, a meeting. You know, you started your practice at a very interesting time, like a month before we went into a pandemic, you moved to a new geographic location, but you've done well and I've seen it grow over time. So, you know, what's worked for you when establishing your new practice during this, you know, and how have you, one, would you ever take Clifton's approach? Could you? Uh, is You know, I'm wondering if it's a certain personality approach that has to personality that's really able to go and do that? And two, do you have any kind of takeaways in terms of what's worked for you 
lately? Well, I think uh, my story is similar to Clifton's in that uh, I did do a lot of networking, but it all happened uh, before I started my business. So because of my history with the AIS and the AIA, I met all these people all across the country. And so my version of what he did happened through volunteer work mostly, but I certainly made a ton of connections the 10 years prior to starting my company, which helped me when I hit, um, you know, the uncertain parts of the pandemic, like trying to navigate how to be a new business owner in the pandemic was just emotionally draining. There were so many unknown variables, like, you know, you already have a new business that you're trying to put framework in place. And then to have this additional complication that basically upends everything you know about the way that the world works and how people are responding just made it so complicated. So um, I I think we at one point, Evelyn, had a conversation about me needing to just have really honest conversations with other people and get back into my network. And, you know, so at first when I had started my business, I was really focusing on people that I I trusted and I felt like I could be very candid with and just say, hey, this is really hard and I'm struggling and I'm trying to figure it out. And then as I progressed into the pandemic and as I started having more and more conversations through the podcast, like I got more comfortable reaching out to other people in my network and just allowing for that level of transparency that you're talking about in the first part of what this conversation was, um, just being really honest about the fact that that I'm a new entrepreneur in some ways and I I need help and I need, you know, to collaborate with people in order to make my business successful. And so a willingness, I think, to have those conversations and to have many of those conversations has allowed me to have a lot of growth in this uh, second half, going into the second half of the year for this year. I remember that conversation and it's it's interesting how it's kind of like comes full circle or, you know, we, we talk about the importance of leaders to be able to really communicate at all levels. And it's just interesting to see that how that's even translated into business development for you. Yeah. And I think also like my husband and I had a talk at one point too, because I think with the pandemic, there was a part of me that was actually holding back because I'm like, okay, I'm trying to manage risk and I want to take on work, but I'm such a new business. I'm not sure like to the extent of work that I can take on. So there was a part of me that was limiting things at the beginning in in an effort to really make sure as a sole proprietor who was new to this, that I was able to get my feet under me in a very uncertain time. And basically earlier this year, he was like, you've got to just start saying yes to all these opportunities. Like, you know, say yes, take a risk, put yourself out there and like, see what happens. And I put that into motion and the results have been really good. I mean, I, I have a lot of work for the second half of the year and actually going into the 2022, I feel confident that I'm well positioned to not run off the cliff. But coming back to our speaker for today, you know, it was funny to me, Clifton is such a unique personality and I really, I laughed so hard during this interview. He made me giggle a few times, but he, I think he has just this like personality that's open to risk and open to taking on um, an exploratory conversation with people just in pursuit of trying to figure out this bigger idea that he has behind his company. And so you know, I think as people think about how they're trying to grow their businesses, you have to take risks in order to get a return. And so like this idea of the door-to-door salesman or going out and having these conversations, like that could be a real big turnoff for some people. They might say, yeah, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to, I don't want to do that. I don't, but you know, that's what it takes like to run your business. Like really, truly, it takes having conversations putting yourself out there, getting uncomfortable and and just showing up and seeing like um, how can you add value or grow your company? I think that's a great place to end the conversation. Thank you for listening and tune in next week. 
Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this podcast episode. Visit twinmotion.link slash disrupted and try Twinmotion for free. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. You can find all of our past episodes by visiting practiceofarchitecture.com backslash podcast. You can also get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of ARCH. And you can join us in the POA lab. You can apply to be a part of the Practice of Architecture lab by visiting practiceofarchitecture backslash lab, where you will have more opportunities to interact with us and all of our podcast guests. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about all of the podcasts and video content connected to this community by visiting gablmedia.com. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about.